the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. What a big episode, Justin. Not only are we doing Ghostbusters, one mm-hmm. of our favorite movies, mm-hmm. um, which we chose appropriately so because it is our one year anniversary. Happy anniversary, Happy Justin. Happy anniversary. And, I, you know, we, we've said numerous times, as you've stated before, we've contradicted ourselves on this podcast many times and said that we're not going to do bigger movies, but it's Ghostbusters. And... This kind, of, this whole podcast is kind of about some of our favorites. Yeah, and celebrating Cele- movies that we love. Exactly. Um, and it's we kind of made it a point this entire year um, not to gab about our feelings and just kind of go straight into the movie. <laughs> and uh, today will be one exception because it is our one-year anniversary. We just want to say a little bit about, one, if you've been listening to us for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, we can't thank you enough. Um, it's been definitely a major push for us to continue to like work harder and get better at research and, and get better at refining the episodes and, and really getting down to what we hope people find interesting. And, um, that's taken some time, you know, and, and, uh, we get, you know, I think we get a little bit better each time. We hope that we hope, I hope that we're getting better each time. I think so. Yeah. It's like a new research project every, every week when we go into this, at least for me, I, I have, I dedicate a lot of time to, you know, to this, we, you and I both kind of, we have our different aspects of the podcast that we, we handle Justin, you know, this, this product would not happen without you. You put all of this together and there's no way my brain could, could wrap around everything that you do on the computer end of this. And I love doing the graphics. It's fun. And I, man, I've gone back to the, some of those early graphics that I've done for episodes and I'm happy no, that I, they I, look the way they do now. And I love that you <laughs> handle all the writing for the show notes and, and the write-ups for the... Putting that journalism ads. degree to good use. But uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, it's, this has been a great experience. Like I didn't really know anything about podcasting. I don't, I think I'd probably listen to like 10 podcasts and then... Yeah. All of a sudden, just sort of like, oh, I'm going to try to do this. And then, you know, you jumped on board and you're like, I don't even know what the podcast is. You like came up to me at like 1130 one night when I was working and you're like, hey, uh, do you listen to, do you like podcasts? I know you like movies and stuff, but uh, you want to. I said it just like that. <laughs> do you like want to do a podcast together? I don't know. Maybe you like movies. I like movies. So maybe we have something to talk about. That's exactly what you said. Yeah, it was, I remember it. I had a couple beers. It was late. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was nervous. Um, but no, it's it's been a learning experience pretty much the whole time. Yeah. But um, we've gotten some really good responses and, you know, our, our movie selection has been all over the map. I think we'll probably continue to do that. Yeah. You know, it was something that we, you know, we didn't want to stick with something that was totally obscure, but then we didn't want to go for something that was totally had been talked about a million times on a million podcasts. And, and there's certainly movies that we've done that, that have been, I think, 
both, but yeah, you know, we're, we're trying and, and, you know, we've gotten some good suggestions on movies here and there. And, uh, but anyway, not to drag this out too long. I just, I mean, it say, is a celebration though. It's yeah, our anniversary. It's, it's you know, one, one thing that I like as far as when we choose episodes or like main focuses of when we choose whatever the main focus is going to be of the episode, the main movie, we can always go as obscure as we want for our picks of the week. So it may not be a whole episode about a movie that, you know, maybe a bunch of people don't really, you're not going to get as, as, as many people listening with a real rando deep cut, but that's why we have the picks of the week and, I really love going deep on in, into research mode for our main movies, and we've got some pretty exciting ones coming up here too. Yeah, I think the you know we're we're keeping this up. This is I think it's been a year. It's, there's been some. I hope we're, we are keeping yeah, this up. No, right? ab- are you firing yeah, me? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, like it's it's been a year, and we've learned a lot. But this is I feel like this is like a jumping off point. Yeah. This is like. Um, so yeah, no, I think we're going to have a lot of good stuff coming up and people do seem to appreciate like the giveaway stuff we're doing. We're trying to work that into our, the way we do things a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there'll be more of that, more interacting on uh, social media, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so we'll stop gabbing about our feelings and <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Yes. We hope you enjoy this episode. And all the future episodes to come. Mm. And all of the catalog before that we have of this. Man. Well, Ghostbusters, we've we've chosen because it's one of our faves. We figured we'd celebrate our one-year anniversary of one of our favorites. We're doing something a little bit differently with our picks of the week this time around. We're just going to go with something that's not necessarily connected to the main feature like we normally try to do. Uh, We're just straight up going for like something that is real personal to us something Mm -hmm. that we uh is a favorite of ours in some manner and so uh, we kind of talked about this for a little bit and yeah um, I decided I figured I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to fit in a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie into (laughs) connecting to one of our main features I told you we could do a whole episode if you ever wanted but 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 I'm 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 real into Jean-Claude Van Damme I've always been a fan since I was a kid and so I felt that uh I felt like this was a good time to do one of his movies Perfect. and I've chosen what I consider to be like one of the best out of the classic era of uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies and that's 1990s Lionheart. I can't wait to hear about it. I really can't. And what was your, I know you've been, you were teetering and tottering. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not actually sure what you chose. Oh really? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I won't, I won't say the other one that I was going to choose cause I'm sure I'll talk about that one again, but I, I went with uh, Romancing the Stone, which has been a favorite of mine since I was a youngster. And I finally settled on that one because it was raining all like kind of like last week, week and a half a little bit. And I put it on one time and I just was like, man, I love this friggin' movie so much. And then, no kidding, like I watched it two other times. Like I watched it three times in, in the span of like a week. And I just... Yeah, was just really overcome with how much I loved that movie. So, Romancing the Stone, that's my pick of the week. Also, uh, this episode, because um, Bill Murray kind of dominates uh, Ghostbusters, where we've we've decided to sort of, um, and because we knew we were going to talk a little bit extra. Yeah. Um, 
we decided we weren't going to do a Murray moment this episode. Um, but there'll be some Bill Murray talk, of course. We're talking about Ghostbusters yeah, here. We didn't want to, I mean, he's in every episode. And even though this is an anniversary special, you know, we didn't want it to be overkill because Ghostbusters was kind of big in his career. It's, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to take also a little extra time here. Um, like I said, we've been doing this for a year. We, we, we start getting better, you know, each time we don't have as many stumbles. But over the course of the year, we've had some pretty serious stumbles where, you know, you just have to stop rolling and, and start over again. And um, we've sort of compiled a very extremely short blooper reel. Uh, it maybe could be no, longer. Maybe nobody will find this <laughs> remotely funny or fascinating. Um, maybe not fascinating, right. but it's funny. Right. Interesting. If you guys only knew some things, I mean, tiny blooper reel, but man... Some of the conversations that are cut out of our talks, I mean, it's just... Which I, I think is good. I think it, it's good. And, it's great. And we always, yeah. uh, I will say too, we've we've tried to make it a point this whole year to not be dropping F-bombs left and right, which is something that I do, we do in our normal lives. Yes. So I will say... Uh, it's a conscious choice to do that on yeah. the podcast. And I, But I will say uh, these bloopers, uh, some of that didn't quite happen and that's why they were cut out. So it, it was a little bit of uh, Yeah. So we'll go to this quick little blooper reel. I think it's like two minutes long. And we'll come back and we'll start uh, talking about why we're talking about Ghostbusters. I'm glad you just didn't put one together that's just me uh, saying, oh, F me over and over again, because I don't know how many times I say that. Yeah, there was plenty of material to do so, but <laughs> I, I, I went kind of light. Here we go. So uh, I'll try to get all this in here. It's a lot to talk about with the cast. Um, yeah but we'll try to do this as briefless as we can. It's briefless? Did I say that? I think you said briefless. Weird. <laughs> it's probably the whiskey. Um, and the pistachios. 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 Probably the pistachios. Vincent Gambino is coming down from Jersey and shaking things up in Alabama. And he learns uh, a lot about being an attorney. And... Um, Learns he about grits. Learns about grits. Um, he might get these boys off. He might not. That sounds weird. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> okay. All right. Learns about grits. I'll just pick it up from there. So my nickels, my nick. So my nickels. Oh my god. So my. Wow. I can't say my nickels. Apparently. Let's move on to our picks of the week. Hey, let's move on to our pick of the week. It's our picks of the. Is it our pick of the week? Yeah, you're right. It's our picks, picks of the week. There's two of us. I didn't totally fuck it up. <laughs> um, like 26 episodes, uh, <laughs> except for those first 15 where you just fucking humored me. <laughs> uh, my backup movie, because I wanted to stick with Ridley Scott and one that wasn't as well known. It wasn't Legend, was it? It wasn't Legend. It was, um, I went via Actra. Via Actra. what? Via Actra. Viagra? Via Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we were talking about all this sort of like <laughs> sexual stuff earlier. So, um, <laughs> I went via Actra. <laughs> Now from our sponsor, Viactra. <laughs> Viactra. <laughs> Have you talked to your doctor about Viactra? <laughs> um, 
I don't have a doctor. Uh, I am a doctor. Um, doctor, doctor, doctor. So here's the thing. So, okay, well, those that was our. Uh, that's one year of us uh, <laughs> brought, you know, condensed into two minutes of us just screwing up on the podcast, screwing up and screwing off. Yep, All that's right. what we do. Yep. But now we're going to get down to business. We'll be brief with this. Why we chose Ghostbusters outside of it being one of our favorites for our mm-hmm. one year anniversary episode. This is my favorite movie of all time. And I, I think I've gone through a period of of feeling like weird saying that because it's such a big movie. And people kind of look at me weird when I when, you know, that question, what's your favorite movie? Like, how are you? One, really? But if you're going to ask me that question, I'm going to say Ghostbusters. And I think it's a perfect comedy, personally. Yeah, I agree. I think it, I think there's so many elements that are working. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it functions as a comedy. It functions as like a an adventure tale. It functions as a everyday person. Kind of like situation. horror light. Yeah, a little bit. It it works. It works many different angles and seems to excel at all of them. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into quite a few things with Ghostbusters that we can pack in here. You know, we'll talk about um, why we think this movie works mm-hmm. uh, so well. We've got some opinions on that. We'll give you some background history on uh, how this movie came to be because there's... The creative quite, minds. The, yeah, there's there's a lot yeah. going on and a lot of people that had worked together several times and were good friends and we'll get into that a little bit. Probably, uh, well, I'm sure we'll hit on the special effects aspect of this. Um, origin. There's a little bit of a origin story too, of where just the idea, you know, uh, aside from writers aside, kind of where the idea of Ghostbusters came from. And definitely talk about its cultural significance because this is a movie that's 35 years old now and still is being celebrated. You and I actually next week yeah. are going to uh, Powell Hall where the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra plays and they're going to show. They show Ghostbusters over the symphony, and they played the live Elmer Bernstein score uh, underneath be... the movie. I and mean, they still have the dialogue, but yeah. they took out the music and they replaced it with a live orchestra. That's going to be so cool. Yeah, but it's certainly a movie that is is is, is constantly being celebrated, and uh, people are still going as Ghostbusters, and and yeah, for Halloween, and it's not. Just because there was, you know, another one that came out in 2016, it's it's just a still culturally significant film. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about the franchise itself because yeah. this, you know there was a sequel, there's a reboot, there was a cartoon, uh, there was like a mass marketed toy mm-hmm. line. So we'll we'll get into that a little bit. And um, you know that there was only one um, that there was only one Ghostbusters car. Like there wasn't like a, a few of those hearses that were. I didn't know that. Yeah, it made it. It broke down finally in Ghostbusters two, hmm. but only one. Wow. Ecto one. All right, already getting some fun. We're facts just already. Here. I mean, already getting. We're full that. of them, really, yeah. for this movie. Yeah. So a lot of stuff to talk about with Ghostbusters. Um, uh, before we get into our first fun Ghostbusters clip, will you give us just a brief lowdown on? What is this movie about? In case there is a listener that possibly hasn't seen it. And there are those people. I showed this movie to someone I know that had never seen it, if you could believe that. Anyway, they exist still. So Ghost- I'd, I'd also like to say, and yes. since it's our one-year anniversary, yeah. I'll try not to say it too many times this episode, but I don't know if I'll help it. It's our anniversary episode. But um, I would like time. to point out, 
and I might've done this once before, but, um, you know, Lindsay writes all of the, you know, I always, it's sort of format for me to ask you what the movie's about and what the plot is. You know, you write all these plots yourself. You're not just reading this off of IMDb or, some are better than others. Sometimes, uh, but I'm just saying, you, you know, you come up with your own version. <laughs> version of it. Yeah. I yeah, I'm not reading it off of IMDb. Or you anything. take that special extra time to. I do. The running time for this movie is approximately um, one hour and forty. I don't know if that's true. It made this much at the box. Just kidding. I'm not going to tell you that at all. Um, all right. So Ghostbusters is four guys who are comprised of scientists, parapsychologists, and psychologists who are rounded out by an everyday man. So we've got four guys who team up to battle this eruption of hauntings and ghosts that's taken over New York City. It's become quite a pesky and ever-expanding problem. And the story specifically is centering around one woman, which sparks kind of this whole paranormal event, which really becomes pretty much an apocalyptic kind of movie. Like, towards the very end, I mean, I don't know what's... I mean, the Ghostbusters, of course, saved the day, but what would have happened if they hadn't? I mean, I can only imagine ghosts would have taken over, like, New York's coming apart at the seams. I can only imagine it'd be some type of apocalypse. Maybe it's an apocalypse light movie. In a nutshell, Ghostbusters is four guys who are the only guys in New York that can eradicate this massive ghost problem. Thanks for that. We're going to uh, move into our first clip from the Ghostbusters, and then uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about it. Forget MIT or Stanford now. They wouldn't touch us with a 10-meter cattle prod. You're always so concerned about your reputation. Einstein did his best stuff when he was working as a patent clerk. You know how much a patent clerk earns? No. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. For whatever reasons, Ray, call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe that we were destined to get thrown out of this dump. For what purpose? To go into business for ourselves. This ecto-containment system that Spengler and I have in mind is going to require a load of bread to capitalize. Where are we going to get the money? I don't know. So Ghostbusters is really a team of friends all coming together to work on the movie. They'd all worked together in the past on several films. Um, we've got Ivan Reitman as the director of Ghostbusters. Uh, the movie was written by actors in the movie, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. Mm-hmm. And then they brought in their uh, friend Bill Murray, who had acted in several other movies that had involved Ramis writing and Ivan Reitman directing. Mm-hmm. But they had sort of this uh, long history together before Ghostbusters came along. And I think that's partially their relationship due to why this movie functions so well and why it, it, the chemistry really comes off on screen. But you've got, you can give us the real lowdown on well, how, how this relationship between these, these guys all kicked I'll, off. I'll do a quick, a quick timeline to when it gets up to Dan Aykroyd coming up with this the, the origin basically for, for Ghostbusters. So it was around 1968, 69 when Harold Ramis joined Second City 
out of Chicago, and he met Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's brother, who was already in um, that company. And quick little funny story, Brian Doyle's like, hey, dude, my mom wants to make us dinner, so you want to come over to Wilmette and um, have dinner with my family? Let's go pick up my brother Billy real quick. He's he's working uh, the concession stand at the ninth hole of the golf course that he worked at. So they went and picked up Bill. That's where Harold Ramis met Bill Murray. So he he left, or Harold Ramis left Second City for a little bit, came back a little bit later, um, and he ran into Bill Murray. I think he said he he saw him. If, you, if you're familiar with Chicago, you know that there are stories called Treasure Island, and Harold Ramis said he saw Billy Murray across the street one time hawking some chestnuts, and then he wouldn't see him again until he came back to join second the Second City troop again, and Bill Murray had joined um, Second City in Chicago. So from then on, John Belushi was also part of Second City, and that's when he decided to form the National Lampoons troop and moves uh, some folks out of Second City and moves them to New York. That includes him, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Joe Flaherty, and... Harold Ramis. So they all go to, I mean, th- this is a lot of history here that I'm really condensing down into a Cliff's Notes version. So they go to New York and that's where Ivan Reitman gets mixed in and he wants to produce an off-Broadway version of the National Lampoon's radio show or the or National Lampoon's radio hour, National Lampoon's show. So Ivan Reitman is wanting to produce that and that's where he kind of meets everybody for the first time. And there's there's a funny little story about how he came into just kind of snuck into like a rehearsal of the National Lampoon's Troop with all of these people who were, you know, this was before Saturday Night Live. This was before these people were blowing up, but they were huge personalities and all inwardly knew that they were all good. And so... Ivan Reitman's hanging out in the back and just, you know, cracking up at what these guys are coming up with. And then he, in his infinite wisdom, is like offering some suggestions and saying, what if you, you know, did this that way? And right about then, Bill Murray goes over and uh, just takes his coat off a hanger, puts it on Ivan Reitman, wraps him in his uh, scarf and escorts him out. Anyway, everybody was cool and chill after that. Of course, he went on to produce that. And then pretty much every, not everyone, but a lot of those National Lampoon's folks were chosen by Lauren Michaels to do Saturday Night Live. Harold Ramis was not one of those. And from that point on, Ivan Reitman uh, kind of grabbed on to Harold Ramis, asked him to help write Animal House, which Ivan Reitman produced. And let's see, then they went on to do Meatballs together. Harold Ramis worked on the script. Ivan Reitman directed. Then there was uh, Caddyshack, which Ivan Reitman produced, did not direct. Harold Ramis directed and co-wrote along with Brian Doyle Murray. Then there was Stripes, which got it all jumbles together. And then there was Stripes that Ivan Reitman directed and Harold Ramis wrote. And then let's see, then we had Ghostbusters, and it was Ghostbusters 1 and two in eighty nine, and that was kind of where Ivan the last Ivan Reitman collaboration, and then the last collaboration of kind of that trifecta or some mixture of them was was Groundhog Day with Harold Ramis and 
Bo Murray. And, and prior to all that, I was just going to add, because I found this kind of interesting, that mm -hmm. Ivan Reitman came to the U.S. from Canada, mm -hmm. um, but early, early in his career, his first two big producing gigs were that of producing the very first two features from David Cronenberg, Shivers, and Rabid, yeah. which is kind of wild. Yeah, Ivan Reitman, if, if you weren't familiar with us, he did a little bit of did a little bit of dabbling in some horror movies. Maybe you need to revisit some Cannibal Girls featuring Eugene Levy. Was that Ivan Reitman's first film as a director? Um, he, first? he was the executive producer, and I, I, I know he directed, I think it might have been his first direction. I'm gonna confirm that real quickly. Okay. I'm just. But gonna... yeah, but but all the all these guys were very comfortable. By the time Ghostbusters came along, they were extremely comfortable, and this movie actually came together within like a one year period. Like they had pitched the idea to the studio. Dan Aykroyd had like a different version of what became Ghostbusters, because um, it was originally. It was supposed to be like John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd movie, yeah. and then John Belushi passed away. But Ivan Reitman still liked the story, so he said, can you change it? So he changed the story. They were going to cast different people, and Ivan Reitman pitched it to the studio as a $30 million budget, and he got a green light. And as soon as he got the green light, they started – they all met up at – Well, they had – already kind of secured Bill Murray and, and Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman, you know, said, listen, Danny, you know, your script's awesome, but what you have here is like an astronomical budget. We really got to scale this back. Let's not make it this intergalactic, crazy story that you have. Let's make it set on a very earthly atmosphere. And once we scale that back, I'm I'm gonna see if Harold Ramis is interested and help you kind of rewrite this. And Dan Aykroyd was really receptive from what I from what I've gathered. Yeah, I read like all three of them, Harold, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, and Ivan Reitman all stayed in like Dan Aykroyd's one of his houses and like worked diligently for yeah like three months. But but they all went up to like Martha's Vineyard yeah. and like. Well, what I was saying before is like this. This went really fast. I mean, mm -hmm. from the time they got the green light, it was one year and change, I think, from going from idea to script to finished movie. Yeah, there um, was the, the script was not at all finished. But I think that that's a testament to these guys being so comfortable with each other and knowing each other's talents and, and how, to, how to work really quickly, but also pull off something that was like legitimately good and funny. Mm -hmm. um, but it is hard for me to believe that this... Uh, really was like all turned around in one year. The fact that all of these guys had worked together before and they knew how to, like Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis knew how to write for Bill Murray. They knew how to write skits in general and they were all really good at improvising too. And uh, uh, same with um, another Second City alum, which was Rick Moranis that got thrown into this too. Um, funny little tidbit that was original. That part was originally written for John Candy, who passed on it. Um, but Rick Moranis was also another good guy to do improv and kind of just work off the cuff. So if something wasn't working in the script or in a scene, everybody kind of just knew it was going to pan out. Now the original idea from for Ghostbusters, this reinvention kind of that that Dan Aykroyd had from coming from like Abbott and Costello ghost type story 
like all of that Abbott, Abbott and Costello follow the ghost or something like that. Whatever those old type of like monster movie type of stories were. Um, so he kind of just got that idea from the movies he watched as a kid. And also the fact that his probably one of the biggest factors is that his whole family, he comes from a long line of folks that are really involved with paranormal whether it's investigation whether it's holding seances whether it's hauntings like Dan Aykroyd knows kind of a thing or two so in a, in a lot of ways you know I mean a lot of this is exaggerated in Ghostbusters but he knew what he was kind of talking about and he's also really good at BS so Dan Aykroyd can make you believe anything and so if it's something that he already knows and believes is fact, he's going to be able to sell it to you really well, like what happens in Ghostbusters. And I think that's a good place to kind of start here with this sort of why Ghostbusters works so well. And I think just that being one of the first reasons is going for a story that, you know, there's a lot of special effects and there's a lot of stuff that hasn't happened in real life, but basing the story in reality. I mean, there are certainly people that believe in the paranormal. There are certainly people yeah. that investigate the paranormal. There's dozens of TV shows Dan on Dan Aykroyd has one of um, those shows. Right. But, <laughs> uh, but he was coming from a very genuine and real place. And let's, you know, and then expanding upon that, making it funny, like you said, exaggerating things, developing a story here that that's based in something that we can believe in. And then, on top of all that, you put these guys in a situation where they are scientists. They are educated in paranormal activity. Yeah. This is something that they're studying and they're teaching and they're extremely enthusiastic about. So by the time we see our first ghost, it's believable to us because they're so excited. And we've already put our faith into these characters that, that this is something that they're going to lead us to. And, and mm -hmm. then you know, we're, we're along for the ride at this point. And I think that's a really simple yet genius way to set up a story and to get an audience behind you, get an audience believing in your characters. And then you can kind of get as crazy and silly as you want, but you still stick within like the reality of the original setup of the characters. So we've got this credibility established and they've just lost their jobs. They've been kicked out of the university that they work for. And everyone can relate to that. I mean, I don't know if you've ever lost a job or been fired, you can relate to that. They don't know what they're going to do. What they are, are parapsychologists and psychologists and scientists, and they know that they can put their knowledge to use and they're pretty sure that they can catch a ghost and hold it. So hell, why not go into business for yourself? Create the only business around. No one else is doing it. So this is kind of a story about starting a small business, a black comedy about it. And I, I think whether or not you have done that yourself or not, you can relate to that. We go into these mundane details with these Ghostbusters of taking out mortgages and loans and all of these details that seem really boring, but all of these things are further establishing without the audience even knowing it, that you are buying into, you're just buying into who they are. So then when we get to something that you might not believe in, that being ghosts, you buy that that's what they're doing without even realizing that you've just accepted the reality that ghosts exist and that they're taking over New York. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's, that's what I love is this, that it's such a simple story, mm -hmm. but there's all these little elements in the script story-wise, story-driven, plot-driven that, that creep up and you don't realize that you're getting 
what would be normally yeah boring information, but you're being totally entertained because these guys are comics and they yeah. know how to make dull <laughs> scenes like walking out of a bank from everybody has three alone. mortgages yeah. nowadays and making that you know making that funny and then also one other thing that i think that the movie does like again talking about this sort of based in reality is yeah. uh using the epa the environmental protection agency yes uh, that totally. was something that i don't think a ton of people were familiar with and they are sort of be making fun of the epa in this movie i used to think they were the enemy when yeah I was a this, kid. Movie, this movie doesn't really paint a really like great light no, about the epa don't. and the epa does really like a lot of good stuff yeah. like yes i think it is again something that the movie utilizes like having the the head of the or having someone that works for the epa come in to question like their containment unit and then also like it leading to them talking to the mayor of the city and like having to get approval and the permission to to do what they need yeah. to do to save to the city i think uh, bringing in all those elements that are sort of you know these realistic uh situations that would need to happen for a, a company to to function this way you know they would need that permission because they are doing something that w- you know, is relatively probably illegal. Yes. Um, and then they kind of, even though, again, it's played for laughs in this movie, they continue to implement these these real-life situations to keep the story grounded in reality so that that way when this other stuff comes along, you're, you're, not, you're not just like, this is just the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And yet again, one other thing that helps you buy into the universe. What I wanted to also kind of get into is that the the universe of like Ghostbusters, like exterminators of ghosts, they've gotten some gigs of a busting ghost, but there's also this change in the story when we introduce Sigourney Weaver's character. I think in like a, a movie that wasn't, if this wasn't a comedy, like in a weaker film, this total tonal change could have really like derailed a lot of the humor, but they're able to shift the story to, I would say somewhat scarier serious tone and then also somewhat serious slash silly tone but still maintain that you know these guys are going to come and try to save today and and then also on top of all that involved this sort of like quirky love story between bill murray and Mm -hmm. sigourney weaver it's like the perfect love story because it's like not but it is but to me it's wild because you know they already had a good thing going they already had like a solid story they've got comedic actors they've got funny bits they've got funny scenes Mm -hmm. but they didn't stop there you know they they continued to add and add and add to this movie and i think that's why it's so successful because it is very broad you have all these elements uh, all these genre mix all these genres mixed together mm-hmm. and a lot of times it doesn't work but i think that there there was like a confidence there was like a talent behind it to where you know they kept pushing forward and yeah. and and, they, and these guys said you know they felt like they were making a good movie there wasn't this sort of thing like well we hope we're doing all these crazy mixing no, they of genres they they felt like everybody felt like pretty good every step of the way and yeah. they knew right away like i think they said when they first screened it like right away they were like, everything's working. Like when they all first the, screened it without any special effects, yeah. they were like, this is actually working. Like people were like applauding at parts of the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. The original script, the, you know, a lot kind of changed since, since Dan Aykroyd's original version. But basically the original version picked up right where Ernie Hudson's Winston Zedmore comes in. And the Ghostbusters are already kind of like, tired and, you know, been doing this job for a while. And then Winston comes in. But everything that we've been talking about is like the setup to this movie. And I think that that is totally what this movie needed in order to get you involved in that 
in that world in that setup and with Sigourney Weaver bringing her in she's for me kind of the grounding character for for this movie and I think she gives a lot of credibility specifically to Bill Murray's character and him as an actor too she plays off of everyone very well but specifically the chemistry between those two Sigourney Weaver just adds this legitimacy to it even furthermore and what what her character goes through that being she starts getting haunted in her apartment weird things start happening and then she becomes possessed I just think that her character is the grounding point really for the movie and kind of the catalyst for everything else that happens I totally agree I think that yeah she absolutely um, is the the one story that we can focus on like we have all these ghosts you know that we do a montage where there's all these different hauntings going on all over the city but yeah we focusing in on one specific conflict that the ghostbusters can conquer and and her story involves you know that all the way to the end um i also wanted to say like she was like the i think she said something like she was the Catherine dumont to their marx brothers which is basically they yeah. are kind of the Marx Brothers. And, well, and that's a th- that's the thing I, I was going to say. Like as far as like, and we'll get uh, talk a little bit about cast coming up here after mm-hmm. the second clip. But these three guys in the beginning of the movie, being friends and all being comedians themselves, uh, I, like if you watch the scenes in the beginning, the way they're blocked out, I think it can be dangerous getting three comedians together sometimes because if everybody's trying to go for a laugh you know, it can almost like cancel each other out. There's a few movies I've seen, I won't name names, but where I feel that that's kind of happening in in this movie, everybody Mm -hmm. is getting across their own humor, but they're not stepping on toes. Like they're letting Bill, you know, when they, when they do scenes, they're letting Bill Murray do Bill Murray, but Harold Ramis, you know, has his, you know, his, his scenes of quirkiness. And then when Dan Aykroyd's there to really turn on the charm, his comedic charm that he has where it's mm-hmm. like his gullibleness, his innocentness, um, nobody gets in the way of that. They're able to let each other do their thing. And I think that that's something that what a good actor will do, uh, let each other breathe, you know, let each other take turns and work with each other to make the overall scene funny. I think that this can be boiled down to one golden rule of second city actors and that is when you get on stage your job is not to showboat it's to make the other guy look good so if everybody's making each other look good then it's going to come off well even if the material is complete crap so yeah. i think i think that's really what comes through so hard in and, this movie and i think a perfect example of this is just watch closely the scene where uh, one, they finish busting their first ghost when they've contained Slimer and they're talking to the hotel manager. Watch everybody individually <laughs> yeah. in that scene. And then also when Sigourney Weaver first enters their office and is talking to the Ghostbusters, just watch the blocking and how each person reacts. Everybody's doing their own thing, but they're all working together. And it just, it's, it's great. And sometimes it's fun because I'll just watch one person versus the other, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's great the way that they're doing it. They're such, they've just got such great timing. Well, we'll uh, go to another clip. We're going to come back. I know that uh, we did not talk about Ernie Hudson's Winston Zedmore. We don't want you to think we forgot him, but we just have a special section specifically on his character. And there's a story to that. We'll come back. We'll talk about that after this clip. I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. 
I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks. But I gotta tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. What if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. So usually we dedicate the second uh, discussion to kind of talk about the cast, but we've already, we've talked about Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver at length in this uh, podcast and in past. Um, and we kind of already gave you the origin stories of, of how these guys form. So I think it's a perfect opportunity yeah. to talk about Ernie Hudson as Winston Zedmore, very much like the movie itself. He was the outsider that came in uh, to join this group after they were already established. You know, I've read multiple interviews with Ernie Hudson. He has, kind of a very happy slash sad, frustrating story with Ghostbusters yeah. because, uh, number one, his role in the movie was much bigger. And the script that he read when he was offered the part, it was much bigger. Were they still writing the script when they offered it to him? Do you know? That I don't know. Like, in an interview I read, he said that his part was bigger yeah. and he agreed to do it. But wonder then, if it was still being written. But anyway. That's very possible. Like, they were probably casting while they were writing. But yeah. what, what I read, from what I read of an interview with Ernie Hudson, he said that uh, once they were going into production, he he got a updated version of the script mm-hmm. and his part had been drastically cut down and that the producers really wanted to focus, you know, that everybody kind of decided that Bill Murray's, you know, stuff was going really well he and they, was, want, they wanted him to, they wanted to be more about his character and he riffs a lot, so they wanted to allow room for that, so they cut down... The Winston Zedmore character, and again, you know, he comes in yeah. halfway through the movie. He does get, uh, I think, like a more advanced role, you know, and involvement in the second movie, which is great. You he know, does. he kind of yeah. got he kind of got paid back in the second movie a little bit. But what I love, what I do love about his character in uh, Ghostbusters is that the scene where he's talking to Dan Aykroyd in the car. You know, he comes from this religious background, so he's bringing a different element you know he's the one that kind of puts the idea in Dan Aykroyd's head of this is like end of days kind of thing this is like some biblical stuff maybe the dead and have been rising from yeah the grave. and he's basically like I'm doing this for a paycheck but once he gets into it you know he he uses his own uh, belief system yeah. to explain what's going on and and w- which is somewhat true and that being like you know this is end of days this is going to be like judgment day I also read uh in an interview of Ernie Hudson that, you know, he said that this movie really messed him up, like his career, because when the movie came out, he wasn't really an established actor and no one really knew who he was. And so he was still living in a very small apartment in Los Angeles. And when this movie came out, like word got around that he lived down the street at this apartment complex. And so he said people were just like showing up to his house and, or to his apartment. And, uh, and he said that got really old really quick. Yeah. 
he had to kind of like change, restructure his life like very quickly. Uh, while everybody else were comedians to start out, they were able, everyone like Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis. They already had careers they for are, a while. They already had careers for a while and they already had careers established in a genre that they knew really well that they were comfortable in, that people expected out of them. But he wasn't a comedic actor and that wasn't really something that he was trying to go for. But he said every part that he tried to read for that was even semi-serious. He said he had a hard time after Ghostbusters 1. He said Ghostbusters 2, he had the same problem when Ghostbusters 2 ended. He said he really had to fight to convince uh, the director's studio that he could do the role of the mentally challenged character in Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Um, he certainly had an illustrious career post Ghostbusters 2 through the 90s, and he got into television and has certainly had a, a great deal of work. Um, but it was interesting to me to kind of read that he wasn't exactly happy about the way Ghostbusters went down as far as like his involvement in the movies. But he's still, every time I've read him, he does conventions and he says he loves the fans and he's very humble about going to conventions and taking pictures with fans and. Um, seems to you know have, has come to terms with it, but I did just want to put that in because he is uh, an actor that I don't think it's talked about as much when people mention the Ghostbusters. So I wanted to yeah get in uh, his story. Um, yeah, and- it's it's funny how I mean there are four Ghostbusters and it it is kind of uh, drawing in some ways because I mean I think about them as four like the cartoon the real Ghostbusters it's four but the movie yeah the forty minutes it's just three of them. Um, and it, it is kind of, uh, I, I guess that's maybe why I appreciate the sequel. Cause it is, it starts out with all four of them. Yeah. So and I, th- and I think it, it, it must've been difficult because he, you do have that separation, you know, you mm-hmm. do have this. And it's team. necessary for like the plot. Yeah. Um, but, um, and maybe, I don't know. I'm kind of, uh, I'm wondering if maybe since Dan Aykroyd's original script started with, the three guys, you know, kind of like being haggard and tired of their job. And then the introduction of Ernie Hudson's character is where the movie starts. I'm wondering if the why his part was reduced so much was because they added all this pre-story, like the, yeah, I, the Ghostbusters origin story. Yeah, I guess. so much stuff happening before hmm. before the, the actual like second kind of plot yeah. kicks off, subplot kicks off. I meant to add this too. I also read that he wanted to do the voice of Winston in the real Ghostbusters cartoon that came out in the. Yeah. It ran from like 1986 to. It was like five or six say years. Like 1991. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, read for or auditioned for the roles. They made him voice. audition for it? I think he. I, th- I thought he said he auditioned or he lobbied what? for it. He wanted to do the voice of Winston, the character that. That you dude's know, got a great voice, number and, one. Uh, and And he lost out to Arsenio Hall. That's um, that's just silly. But he yeah, so it's like he seems like <laughs> well, he a tough a tough go with Ghostbusters, which is really yeah. which is a bummer. It was a bummer to read, but it's interesting I wanted to um kind of relay that information yeah. because it is something I didn't I didn't I mean maybe it's carnal knowledge to most people that are Ghostbusters fan, but something I didn't really know about till maybe mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. I've I've always really enjoyed him him and I've also, whenever I've seen him in anything, I have thought of him as as Winston Zedmore, and that's because I've loved Ghostbusters. But him in Leviathan, he's great in that. And I've mentioned this to you before. I don't know how many times I've seen Congo, but he's kind of like the highlight, him and Bruce Campbell. 
and also, I mean, he was the warden in Oz, if you watch that that show on HBO. So he's had a, he's had a few pretty good gigs, but yeah, I can see how it'd be a a love hate relationship with Ghostbusters, or just feel like he kind of got you know rubbed out a little bit. So we'll keep it moving on. We want to talk really briefly about just the the franchise of Ghostbusters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the sequel came out five years after the original. Uh, like I said before, there was a cartoon. And then, of course, there was a, re- a reboot um, in 2016. 2016. Mm-hmm. But really quickly, so it's like it took five years to make a sequel, which in, in my opinion is, is a, in the 80s was like a little, a little bit little too, too long. long, a little too long yeah. to do a sequel. Um, but they did. They had a hard time getting Bill Murray to sign on to it. There was an interview I saw where he was asked if there was a sequel and he was like, oh, Lord, I hope not. And uh, similarly, uh Harold Ramis was interviewed at the time when Ghostbusters came out and asked about a sequel for, he had just gotten done doing National Lampoon's Vacation and they asked him um, if there was a sequel and he's like, there is a sequel, but I'm not doing it. I don't believe in sequels. And so that to me was like, I wonder if that's an indication you wouldn't want to do Ghostbusters too. Yeah, I think for the longevity of the Ghostbusters franchise, it's been Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd who have been sort of like enthusiastic yeah. duo that have really wanted it to continue. But I've never gotten the drift that it was because, you know, Harold Ramis or, or Bill Murray or Ernie Hudson, anyone felt any, you know, like they, they didn't want to ever be viewed as a Ghostbuster again. Uh, nothing like that. I mean, Bill Murray still shows up to random things in a Ghostbusters outfit. The man doesn't need to do that. So I think that there was a lot of love for it, but it was because they knew that they created gold with that. But nevertheless, there was a script that that was come up with. Ivan Reitman was doing or signed on to do the sequel and everybody, all the same characters came back for Ghostbusters 2. And I watched this movie day before yesterday. You know what? I still love this movie. And I think I read so many things about you know, people saying that it, you know, it just wasn't as good as the original. Well, nothing is ever, there's hardly any movie, hardly any sequel is ever going to be better than the original. And, and the first one, Ghostbusters is, was gold. And I, I feel like while I do love the second, the, the sequel, people typically want a sequel to be bigger, badder, just like, way more epic than than the first one but the first ghostbusters was that and the second one is much more personal it is i mean the ghostbusters are out of business they're they've been sued by everybody in new york for all the destruction that happened in the first one and it's a much softer story and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, the The story itself is totally fine, but but when the the nut the the crux of your whole movie is that every I mean even um, the mayor of New York kind of makes fun of it in the sequel. Like you want everybody to be nice to each other. Like it's about positivity. The whole second sequel, how they defeat the ultimate evil, which is. I mean, whatever, the guy in the painting, Vigo the Carpathian, whatever, kind of a lame villain, but whatever. Anyway, 
when it's about being positive, that is never, ever, ever going to get an audience to think it's better than the original. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I feel a little bit differently. I don't have as much love for the sequel as you do, but I've certainly it has it has grown on me, and I think I feel like in a general sense it's grown on people. Like I feel like there's not as much animosity toward Ghostbusters 2 as there was like 20 years ago I don't think there should be any animosity I I don't either but I do you know I mean I feel like you know again we said it's like it came out a little bit it was too much time I I never really enjoyed the fact that they're so separated I mean the whole thing that made Ghostbusters 1 so enjoyable is like they Mm -hmm. were such a team we open on such a down note where they're all separated and then they feel like forced together it is very true yeah and you know the so the beginning, it's like I'm just waiting for them to get back together. Get back together, yeah. And you know, I don't, I don't like that about it. But I think that age has done the movie well. Um, I do think that now, like looking back, that you know, we know that this is the only two movies we're ever gonna have yeah. that, that have these same characters in it. It is a nice companion piece to the original Ghostbusters, and I think that it, it is. And now I kind of appreciate the fact that they are separated. I didn't. That's what I didn't like about it. But in some ways, I do like that it takes a realistic view of like what happened in these guys' lives. And because it did take so long for the movie to come out, it does make sense. Like, here's what's happened in the last five years. You know, it's like there's a reason for it. There's a reflection on the characters. And like the first one, it it it, it does like, again, like I said, stays within like a real realistic mm-hmm. sense. And the relationships seem strained in this movie, but that's happens, you know, in, in real life. Friendships come and go. And I think that they're they were tapping into those things in the script. But it just at, at the time it came out, I think, like what the majority of audiences wanted was this guy. These guys who are best friends battling a new monster, battling a new situation, which which. Which does eventually happen in the movie, but it like, only takes yeah. them like fifteen minutes in movie time. I understand to, that to but, get back together, but you know, just it's, saying. yeah. But I, but I, but I think like <laughs> again, I think this is a movie that has yeah. that the time, it, you know, it's get it's getting like a new, it's getting like it's 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 fair shake finally, and I'm glad that there's this companion piece. I'm glad you know these are the two movies we're always gonna have. You know, there was there was a lot of work that went into like a Ghostbusters three mm-hmm. that would have come yeah. out and like what 2010 it, it was something. like in the early 2010s and i don't know if i would yeah. want to seen like these characters age and grow you know i mean i don't know like what was left to be told but you you did track down some information on ghostbusters yeah. 3 yeah there there was um, a- and there was i mean this was like seriously going to happen like it was you Ish. know before yes before if they could have got bill murray on and, and yes. before hell ramus passed away but there was some there was a lot of work that was put into making a Ghostbusters 3 happen. Yeah, there was a f- pretty much from what from what I can understand it, a pretty fully formed Ghostbusters 3 and Ivan Reitman and and Danny Aykroyd were really after Bill Murray and I think it was Reitman you know, he had sent the script to Bill Murray and he finally called him up and was like, "Look, did you get a chance?" and Bill Murray was said to him, Look, man, I've I've read part of it, and it's nothing against the script. It's nothing against the story or anything like that. I just I don't want this to continue, and it's and I and it, it is directly because he wasn't pleased with how the second one came out. And I know that there were a lot of rewrites with the second, and a, a lot of different things happened, and and he wasn't pleased with that outcome. 
So I can understand from Bill Murray's point of view why, you know, he was the the reason really that didn't happen. But the original story from, uh, I, I have not seen the script, but what it was was that it came out of, from from the sequel from Ghostbusters 2, Dana Barrett had Sigourney Weaver's character had a son, Oscar. And Ivan Reitman kind of alluded to maybe this was Peter Venkman and Dana Barrett's love child. It just they just didn't really follow through with explaining that, but it was kind of alluded to and that Oscar would be like this second generation that this would be a passing of the torch kind of story that he would become the new ghostbuster and bill murray said that the the only way he would come back for a ghostbusters 3 is that if venkman dies pretty much immediately and so they wrote that in that that peter venkman was going to die the very beginning and he was going to be in the rest of the movie but as a ghost version of himself so it's pretty much where where it was going and they were really trying to push for this to happen and then Harold Ramis got sick and he was involved with the project he got sick and then shortly after that passed away and with that Ivan Reitman just kind of tapped out and thought you know without Harold involved Billy's not wanting to be involved at all you know what this is what we're gonna do and with Ivan Reitman, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Bill Murray all basically owning the the intellectual property of Ghostbusters. And when you have four cooks in the kitchen that are not agreeing on things and certainly not agreeing to continue with this franchise, what they did agree on was to sell the rights to Ghostbusters uh, for an unspoken, ungodly amount that Ivan Reitman likened to... George Lucas selling the rights to Star the Star Wars Empire, selling the Ghostbusters rights to Sony Columbia Pictures. Now, with that, there was a subsidiary company called Ghost Corps that Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd oversee. It's kind of like this overseeing kind of consultant agency from what I can surmise, which is overseeing the branding and um, advising on anything future that happens with the Ghostbusters. Of course, after that, we did have Ghost, the Ghostbusters with... Um, I think it's so awesome that the 2016 Ghostbusters was with a lot of SNL alum, too, or people that are currently on it or were on it. It was so uh, brilliant to do that. I, I'm sure that that was probably intentional, but I, all of the ladies involved are fabulous comedians. Yeah, and, you know, and I'll, I'll say I don't want to get into like a big debate about the, you know, and not not even a debate, like a long discussion on because you and I won't debate the, because we agree. Yeah, but not even a I debate. like this movie. I, you know, I don't want to get into a long. I mean, it's already the the remake and people's yeah. hatred for it has been talked to to death. But I will say this: you know, we are both fans of the remake. And I'm not a huge remake fan, reboot no, fan. not at all. But I will say that exactly what you just said about it being all these SNL alums, I feel like people are so blinded by the fact that this was a reboot that had like all women. And mm-hmm. I think I feel like people like ran with this idea of like, this is some like crazy liberal agenda thing and they have to, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever. It's like, I've just read so many horrible things <laughs> yeah. about the remake. And it's like, all they were doing was 
they took people who are just like the original Ghostbusters, comedic friends who had worked together for a yeah. while that they knew that they could jump in these characters and do a lot of improvisation. I mean, yeah. pretty much the exact same thing. And to me, that magic comes across on screen. And that's what it's 1000%. about. It's a funny movie. You know, maybe the story in the reality base that the original Ghostbusters had isn't quite there, but you don't want to, mm-hmm. re- you know, it's like you don't want to do a shot for shot, beat for beat remake. Yeah. You know, they, they wanted their own story. And it is an updated version of New York City. We're talking, you know, 30 years, 30 yeah. odd years later. And it is a pretty much skeletal structure of the 1984 original. But it is a completely different movie and there are different things that happen. The strength of the actors involved in the 2016, I don't know. I, I thought I liked it. Well, uh, well, how about we stop there on Ghostbusters? <laughs> we'll come back for some final thoughts, but... We'll move on to our picks of the week, which, again, if, if we're breaking from tradition here where we connect them to our main feature, uh, we went with movies that are near and dear to our hearts that we normally wouldn't do for a pick of the week, but we've kind of gone in a different direction for this episode. Yeah. So your pick of the week was Romancing the Stone, directed it, by Robert Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis. What can you tell me about Romancing the Stone, other than it being one of your favorite movies of all time? Apparently, I like Robert Zemeckis and Ivan Reitman movies more than I don't like them. Um, Romancing the Stone, I'm going on record right now. It is my most favorite rainy day movie. It's not because it was on TV all the time when I was a kid or I was pre-programmed by my mom who also loved it. Nope. It's just a charming and delightful movie that mixes high-spirited humor, action, adventure, paired with perilous situations, and yes, a romantic subplot, which, despite the title, I don't think it ever dominates the entire film. So the story centers around a mousy, introverted, but very successful New York romance novelist, Joan Wilder, whose sister has been kidnapped and is being held in South America. Joan has also unknowingly received a treasure map in the mail, which she is to exchange in order to save her sister. She travels down to Cartagena, Colombia, where she runs into an adventurous shotgun-toting American grifter named Jack Colton. What a name. Sounds like it's just out of a novel. This duo then find the treasure at the end of the map and set out to save Joan's sister. In essence... Joan lives out her very own romance novel, similar to the books that she's been cranking out over the years. Kathleen Turner, the star of our episode 14, Serial Mom. Michael Douglas, the star of our episode 4, Fatal Attraction. And their longtime buddy, Danny DeVito, who everyone knows nowadays from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But I hope you all know Danny has had a giant career before that show. I hope everyone knows that. Anyway... All these guys star in this movie, and although they're now three internationally well-known and respected actors, it was Romancing the Stone which put them all significantly more on the map. Douglas, who is the son of well-known actor Kirk Douglas, was largely known as a TV actor and producer of movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and had only two roles in major films by 1984 when this movie came out, that being The China Syndrome and Coma. Studios didn't think of him as a leading man, though. And the Missouri-born Kathleen Turner was primarily a stage actress. She exploded under the screen in 1981's Body Heat, and then only with one other film under her belt, The Man with Two Brains, with Steve Martin. 
Now, Danny DeVito was in a lot of supporting roles in the 70s, but didn't really hit it big until the year right before Romancing the Stone with the TV show Taxi. Needless to say, studios weren't necessarily clamoring to greenlight this movie, and were certainly unsure that the main actors could actually support a movie like this. But if you know this movie, the chemistry between Turner, Douglas, and DeVito is positively undeniable. Director Robert Zemeckis had finally found a major hit with this one. His only previous bigger movie was in 1980, and it was called Used Cars. But the success of Romancing the Stone was actually the reason that Zemeckis was able to make Back to the Future the very next year. And this film was also a swift kick in a successful direction for Alan Silvestri, who was Romancing's composer and who also went on to do the Back to the Future series, And actually so many other movies that Justin and I have talked about on this podcast, including episode five, which was 1987's Predator. Alan Silvestri's like on so many different movies in the 80s and 90s. It's kind of crazy. But the story behind how Romancing the Stone happened really struck a chord with me. So the writer, Diane Thomas, had been plugging away at the script since the late 70s. And like so many stories we hear, she worked as a waitress to support herself while she was trying to become a screenwriter. As the story goes, she reportedly pitched Romancing the Stone to Douglas, who was a customer at her work. Thinking it had a certain vibrancy and zest that was lacking in pictures at the time, Douglas bought the story and indeed went on to produce the film with Fox. To think about this magical moment happening for Diane Thomas really warms my heart, and I've found more credible sources than not that say that this actually happened. But who knows? I'm sure that there were agents involved and studio opinions, whatever. Diane Thomas finally got her break, and Michael Douglas single-handedly believed in this first-time screenwriter. And while she did get to see the beginning of the uh, long-lasting success of Romancing the Stone, tragically, she actually died in a car accident, and ironically, in a car uh, that Michael Douglas bought her as a thank you for the film. This happened like only a year after the movie. It's kind of crazy. And in her memory, I kind of feel it necessary to say this. And I never really thought of this until I started doing research and came up in a few reviews. When this movie came out, a lot of reviewers called it a Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoff. But this movie was actually written five years prior to that film. So I'm just putting it out there in case you've seen this and thought the same thing. Personally, I never have. And I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. Another quick Indiana Jones connection was that uh, Diane Thomas was tapped by Steven Spielberg to write the sequel to Raiders. And before her death, she had actually completed the first draft of that second Indiana Jones, which was supposedly more of a like universal horror haunted castle type situation, which would be really interesting to see. If Romancing the Stone was any indication of her writing, it would have been really cool to see what Temple of Doom could have been. So I know we got a little off track there, but Romancing the Stone will forever make it into my top movies. I don't know. I can't even say top five, top ten, top whatever. It's one of my top movies, and I hope I am dead and long gone before there's ever a remake. Whether it's a rainy day or lazy weekend morning, this movie It's powerful enough to transport you into this other world. It's two evenly matched leads who face near-death experiences, all the while having this adventure of a lifetime. You disappear into one of Joan Wilder's novels and become that everyday hero. It's just a fun and charming, smart, action-filled movie that never lets up. 
you want Jack and Joan to end up together, but not because they're grossly swooning over each other the whole movie, but because they're just two normal, very, very opposite people being turned into the best action-adventure duo. And they did do a sequel. It was called Jewel of the Nile, and it's great. Kind of like Ghostbusters 2. I love it. There is a special place in my heart, but um, there is nothing like that original of Romancing the Stone. Still, like I said, I watched it three times in a week recently. And I mean, I can rewatch movies, obviously, because of this podcast, but it is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it was one that I hadn't seen since I was a kid. And then uh, someone had gave me like a big box of laser discs. Oh, that's right. You have a laser uh, disc. And, uh, <laughs> I hadn't went through them in a while, and then I, you were talking about *Romancing the Stone* being one of your favorite movies, and I pulled it out and put it in the front of the laserdisc pile, rewatched it upon your recommendation, and I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I didn't really remember too much about it, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, it was a fun movie. It felt like dated a little bit, but and I didn't remember. I'm used to a different version of Michael Douglas, you know, in my mind. Like, oh, I didn't what rem- version of Michael Douglas? You know, like a more like stoic, like. Oh, yeah. A different, you know, he kind of plays more of a... He's very straight. Yeah, he's like rugged. He's like a... I I guess I'm... I guess I'm used to seeing him more in like a suit and like... Yeah. Being in like a more like a... One of uh, one of the white collar like version of Michael himself. Douglas victim quadrology. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's where more I remember Michael Douglas from. So it was interesting that seeing him in like a different light. But no, I thought it was a fun movie, and and Robert Zemeckis uh, certainly like a a director who can handle you know these like sort of big scenes and and keeps a story entertaining. You know. Yeah, I never get tired of this one. They're just it's it's all really great actors. And at the beginning part of their careers, I mean, they're they're all still going today. But um, it's just such a such a fun movie, and a lot of good uh, a lot of good sarcastic humor, and lots of good one liners too. What was a good pick. I'm glad you went for something that was near and dear to your heart. It is very very near and dear to my heart. I really want to know. I mean, I know about your love of Jean Claude Van Damme, the one and the only. But I want to hear about Lionheart. I knew I wanted to go Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, but I didn't know what movie I wanted to pick. And initially I was going to go with Bloodsport, but I just felt like, you know, that is a classic, but I wanted to kind of like step outside of that. I do think that there's this like classic Jean-Claude Van Damme period, Bloodsport, which was his breakout movie, and then Kickboxer. Those are very big overseas, but he wasn't necessarily like an American star and then in the 90s, I think Lionheart was the movie that kind of kicked him off into becoming box office star, like action star. And uh, and I consider this to be like classic 90s Van Damme. I kind of feel like classic 90s Van Damme begins with Lionheart and ends with 1995 Sudden Death. It's a very short span of movies. And uh, he had a few other ones that got theatrical releases uh, in the latter part of the 90s that weren't really that good. And then he kind of like sort of went into the straight-to-video action star, which most action stars do eventually, you know, it, it worse than and they go straight-to-video. But I, I've been a dedicated Jean-Claude Van Damme fan. I've I've watched those movies through the 2000s and even ones that he's done, he's done recently. And there's some of them are pretty bad, but there's a few... Uh, they came out in the 2000s that I think are worth looking at. Replicant being one that I would definitely uh, 
definitely recommend checking out. Um, but anyway, Lionheart uh, was one of his first big 90s movies. It's dr- written and directed by Sheldon Ledich, who was the original uh, writer for Jean-Claude's breakout Bloodsport. He became pretty good friends with Sheldon Ledich, and Jean-Claude Van Damme had a story for Lionheart, uh, and so he worked with Sheldon Ledich on this. And then Sheldon Ledich had kind of made a name for himself as a scriptwriter. He had written Ruskies that was, you know, minor hit in the 80s. And then he wrote the uh, screenplay to Rambo 3. Um, he did have a, uh, he was a Marine. He had a military background. So he was kind of getting, writing these scripts that had sort of military themes to them. And uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme convinced the studio to, uh, along with the producers to let him take a crack at direct, directing the film. And I think it's a pretty good debut. So Lionheart opens in Los Angeles where a character is uh, stuck in the middle of a drug deal gone bad. He's doused with gasoline and nearly burned to death. Word gets through to his brother in Africa, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's a member of the French Foreign Legion. He immediately wants to go to Los Angeles and reconnect with his brother to make sure he's okay. The French Foreign Legion does not want him to leave. They basically forbid him to. He breaks free from them and travels to New York City. So they send two members of the French Foreign Legion to track him down and bring him back and basically do their version of court-martialing because they're considering him a deserter. Uh, Once he's in New York, he realizes that he doesn't really have any means to get to LA. He doesn't have any money. He's sort of feeling kind of desperate. He can't even get a simple phone call to his wife's brother to find out what's going on if his brother's died from his injuries. So he hangs up this payphone and sort of wanders down underneath this freeway and notices there's basically like a fight club going on. Because he has some skills in martial arts fighting, he uh, goes ahead and joins in, fights this guy, defeats him earn some money, makes friends with this guy, Joshua, who's kind of a hustler who knows the streets of New York and also has a connection to someone who runs like basically a bigger fight club for rich people. And so he takes Jean-Claude Van Damme to meet this woman who she runs a kind of like a national fight club where people who are rich can watch guys duke it out in parking lots and they're all dressed up and there's sort of an underlying theme of this movie of basically the rich being totally terrible and taking advantage of of people who are underprivileged and they're they're basically betting on them that these people like beating each other up but it has a very similar theme to Fight Club in a way there's like it's it's sometimes seems like an angry film John Claude Van Damme he has like ethics so he doesn't want to fight necessarily to make the rich people money he's fighting just to get the money so that he can get to Los Angeles eventually getting there reconnecting with his uh, brother's wife and her child she's not too happy to see him because his brother is uh, pretty much not gonna recover from his injuries but he wants to help her out because he feels responsible for leaving his brother many years ago. So he starts fighting in Los Angeles via this connection that Joshua has through a character named Cynthia, the rich woman who organizes all these fights. She sort of has like a, a infatuation with Jean-Claude's character, but he doesn't want to really have anything to do with her. He's just, again, fighting so that he can have money to support his uh, brother's family. Uh, So we have all these great fight sequences where he's fighting different characters. She dubs him Lionheart because his name is Leon. He's French. But Joshua 
the guy who's managing managing him now says that he has a heart like a lion. So he's he's been dubbed Lionheart. Many great little fight sequences here. Uh, it's very much Sheldon Ledage borrowed from his script of Bloodsport. That's very similar where he's taking on different opponents. Once they move it to L.A., there's a lot of interesting sequences where they're fighting or uh, where rich people would go. There's a fight in a racquetball court. Uh, there's a fight in a swimming pool that's like half full of water. And uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme becomes like sort of like the top dog in this uh, fighting underground fighting circuit. But a lot of people are making money off of them. You know, all these people are making bets on who's going to win. Eventually, they pit him up against this guy named Attila, but they try to trick him and they this guy Attila has like basically like injured and killed a lot of people. So they show him a videotape. Uh, Cynthia organizes it to where she shows him a, a edited version of this guy Attila that doesn't make him look as strong. So all, so she wants to basically hustle all these people into betting uh, their money on Jean-Claude Van Damme. But while she's going to secretly bet all her money on Attila because she pretty much thinks this guy is going to kill him. The movie basically then goes into like the biggest rock, Rocky ripoff that I've ever seen where he's fighting Attila. He's just taking the worst beating of his life. And even his manager, Joshua, has bet against him. He continues taking a beating until eventually he turns around. Even the French Foreign Legion guys that want to take him back are there in the audience. are going to like return him back to his home. But even they start cheering for him, even though they hate him because he's taking such a punishment. But then he starts fighting back Attila and eventually defeating him. The movie ends with a totally Hollywood happy ending where uh, the French Foreign Legion uh, basically say that we're going to let you go. You can go be with your brother's family. And his friend Joshua, who manages him, feels terrible about the fact that he betted against him. And the woman, Cynthia, who's been sinister through this whole thing, gets uh, her punishment because she's kind all these people out of the money. So it kind of has it's all ties together in this sort of dumb, happy Hollywood ending. But the whole movie is fun. It's totally enjoyable. If you're not a Jean-Claude Van Damme fan, this one isn't going to turn you around and become a super fan. Through Jean-Claude Van Damme's career, a lot of people seem to make fun of his accent, much like they do Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they have a problem with it. To me, it's never bothered me, but I will say Jean-Claude Van Damme's not the greatest actor in the world, but I do think this was his first movie where he attempted a little bit acting he really plays like a brooding character he doesn't say a whole lot and I think it works to his advantage but again this isn't a movie about acting this is a martial arts film uh, there's a lot of great fight sequences I think this is one of the first few movies in the Van Damme fight sequences where they don't do the whole thing in slow motion they kind of let him do his actual like kick and move and then when he connects with the opponent they have the opponent fall in slow motion um, they don't do the entire thing in slow motion with like slow down sound. And I really appreciate that. I like a fight sequence that shows it in real time. But overall, it's pretty good. Uh, Sheldon Ledger also did a movie uh, directly after this with Jean-Claude Van Damme called Double Impact, which is also a lot of 90s fun. But R Lionheart has always uh, come back to me. I think Bloodsport and Kickboxer are great films. They're among my favorite of early Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. But Lionheart to me is always has like this special like again with romancing and stone for you a special place in my heart it's one i always go back to um it's one that i i really is like my favorite movie to unwind to like if i've had a rough day and i just want to see jean-claude whip the crap out of somebody i'll put on some lion heart a uh, fun fact about this movie was is it it came out so well um, this was a very low budget movie for an action film i think it was around like five or six million dollars the movie came out so well that the producer said, you know what, they were going to do like a really sort of cheesy synthesized score for like no money. 
and they decided to hire like a composer with like a real symphony to compose the music and put like half a million dollars into the music budget because they were kind of shocked at how well the movie came out and I think that the music lends you, you can tell that this movie was like the first Jean-Claude Van Damme movie that had a little bit bigger of a budget and it certainly is the movie that I think uh, turned him on to a major portion of American audiences. I have seen Double Team that's on the latter end of his career and man I I totally want to see Lionheart too. I've really been wanting to see Bloodsport because you've talked about it a few times. But uh, I really like the way that the story is sounding. And why do people have a problem with his accent? That's like always been a draw for me. I mean, he's very handsome and he's he's exceptionally talented. Yeah, I, I think I don't it's know just why one, his I, I just a when I see comments about reviews of those movies, um, and I'll say there was his a accent's great. Yeah, I will say if I. I can't remember when I was looking up reviews. I don't know if I don't want to call anybody out. I don't know if it was the Washington Post or what, but one of the reviews of of Lionheart was whenever he was taking martial arts lessons as a child, he should have also taken English lessons. And it's like this guy was a foreign star. It's like he wasn't an American. And I think that's a problem is like both Bloodsport and Kickboxer were crossover movies. I mean, they weren't huge Mm -hmm. in America. They were kind of very small hits. It's just a lame criticism it's like in someone's accent and speaking of him being handsome I, I do think that Lionheart is a it's it's one of his more handsome performances and uh, one of the right? few where uh yeah mm. they do the whole uh you know he I think later in his career was known for like showing his butt but there was he the, did there yeah. was uh in Lionheart there is that I think that's one of his first movies where she's watching him and then he takes his towel off and like goes into the bathroom and they do the <laughs> they do the full-on back butt shot perfect um, well, I'm definitely sold now. You know, I do really like Street Fighter too, but I'm I I was a sucker for like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, but I liked Street Fighter. So those are our picks of the week, uh, favorites of ours, Lionheart, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Romancing the Stone with Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. Man, couldn't get further apart than that, huh? It's, it's pretty <laughs> It's pretty pretty big difference. This one's gone on longer than usual, but that's okay. Um, did you have any final thoughts on Ghostbusters before we wrap this thing up? Our for our one year, one year anniversary of Don't Push Pause. Any final thoughts? I have a lot of thoughts on Ghostbusters. I don't I don't know what my final one would be. If you asked me to do any line of dialogue from the first or the second one, I could tell you. I've I could seen, do it I, for you. I've seen you when you went down when we were watching it. When you went down to get an, another beer, you were stay in lines as they were appearing on the screen as he walked down the so stairs. you heard that, didn't yeah. you? It was like word for word. Yeah. Timing was pretty good, too. Um, You know the movie well. I'd never question it. I didn't, <laughs> didn't think that you had. Do <laughs> you have any final thoughts? Um, I No, I, I think just in Ghostbusters in general, Um, again, I'm excited that we're going to go see this next week with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, and I... I do. Uh, it's gonna be so cool. I do have a pretty real-looking Ghostbusters outfit that I might, I might bust out for the if it's not super hot out. <laughs> you Dude, know. you're gonna put on your uniform. Yeah, I've got yeah. the. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, I've I, got the, I've got the Egon, <laughs> I've got the Egon uniform. I was thinking about how, man, we didn't even talk about any of the special effects. We didn't. Well, so we had so much going on. Man, um. I did uh, 
I thought of special effects because um, back before they had full on costumes, Ghostbusters outfits and like, yeah, I had one of the first round of toys, you know, back in the 80s and stuff. But when I went as a Ghostbuster for Halloween as a kid, my my parents were so sweet Um, for a proton pack. And I think you can buy the inflatable ones or actual, you know, replica proton packs now. My parents took a board and put some ropes through that board and then super glued two two liter soda bottles and spray painted them black. That's awesome. Glued them on. That was my proton pack when I was a Ghostbuster I as a kid. I little homemade kid outfits. I was always really proud of that one. I think that that costume was reused. I guess my my only final thought on Ghostbusters would be, and I, I think St. Louis kind of claims Harold Ramis a little bit. Um, he went to Washington you know, he went University. To, he went to Wash yeah. U and gives a little bit of a, a shout out to St. Louis with the very top of the building that Sigourney Weaver's character lives in. The actual building is in New York, but they it's only about 20 stories tall, but the, the actual very top portion that they climbed to was modeled uh, was actually a matte painting, but that matte yeah. painting was modeled after a building uh, that's right here in St. Louis. Yeah. They did a lot of, uh, I think that's so cool. I'm going to go look at it now. Yeah. they it's did. Like, a, it's like uh, three blocks from here where we record. Maybe we should take, walk the dogs maybe down there. Maybe we should. <laughs> um, it was a lot of really cool matte paintings in this movie. Like when they when they eventually did move from New York to a soundstage in L.A., and did you know um, some filming inside with a 360, you know, um, backdrop of just like a matte painting of New York with these like twinkle lights to, you know, work as lights. But all of that in that final scene is totally a painting around them. I think that's so so amazing. The special effects in this movie are, I mean, as, aside from whenever Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver turned into dogs whenever they have to move. Yeah. That's a little, eh. but the, the, the dogs themselves are awesome looking. And I think the, the ghost effects w- still work really well. Yeah. I, th- I think this was, it was a good time for effects. It was like the perfect blend of optical and practical effects, like working together hand in hand. Yeah. And the fact, uh, I, I think too, that Ghostbusters was given so much access to film in New York, I think is something that doesn't happen very much anymore, or at least with as much freedom. And I mean, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd were, were legends in New York. I think they could have probably gotten away with everything. And by the time Ghostbusters 2 rolled around, everyone in New York was happy to work with them. But there's, there's so many things that happen in Ghostbusters like there's a one of the scenes where all four of them are like trotting down the sidewalk and running in like one of the montage scenes they're actually being chased by a security guard at Rockefeller Center because they weren't supposed to be filming there so they got away with a a, a lot of uh, fun things also shut down a good good portion of Manhattan for quite a few days I think Harold Ramis said something like during rush hour a good 60 blocks from like Manhattan to Brooklyn, something like that was shut down and people were very annoyed by it, including uh, they just happened. This happens in New York. You just see like random people that are famous, including Isaac Asimov, who's a well-known science fiction writer and who um, Dan Aykroyd saw him and was like, whoa, 
Isaac Asimov and totally went over and like introduced himself and was like, hi, I'm Dan Aykroyd. And he's like, we're filming this movie. And he and Isaac Asimov's like, you're responsible for this. All of this like, you know, clutter and like everyone being inconvenienced. And Dan Aykroyd's like, yeah. And he's like, you, this is a disgrace. I can't believe this. this is disgusting. I can't believe you're part of this. And like walked off like totally upset about it and just kind of ironic that what this movie's about right. and he's disgusted by it. So many fun facts. We <laughs> so could, we many all, things. We'd never be able to squeeze them all in. <laughs> well, we'll we'll stop there. Um, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if if you've been listening this whole year, or like joined in yesterday, we can't appreciate it enough. Thank you for all the comments. Thank you for all the encouragement. Um, thank you for all the good ideas. We really do appreciate everything that you guys have to say. Um, any criticism, praise, really anything. We just we love knowing that we that there's an audience out there that wants to know about these movies that we love so much. And there's a reason we don't talk about movies that we think are, you know, not so great. And because why are we gonna waste your time? Yeah, I don't talking wanna, about and them. I don't want to be negative. I like and to we don't want to be negative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also want to say a uh, one year anniversary thanks to Mary Timmel for doing our introduction, uh, Matt Pace who did our music, Bull Shoulders who did our logo that we use. These are all elements people that helped us when we first Justin started out. Hayward. Justin Hayward. So many thanks to Justin Hayward for doing so many segments this year for us. All good friends and family. we got a great supporting cast in this one. Yeah, all all good (laughs) friends and family that really didn't know what the heck we were doing. We were just kind of starting out and and joined in to to help make this thing as professional as possible. And thank you, Lindsay, for all the hard work that you do. I can't imagine uh, doing this with anyone else or without you in general. Man, all of the editing, everything that you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Justin. And I'm so happy to be a part of this. It really is. It's the job I don't get paid for, but it's the it's my most favorite job in the world. Yeah, I, I I agree. I agree. Well, that uh, that wraps up a uh, one year of Don't Push Pause. Oh my God. Um, you can always uh, get a hold of us directly. Don't Push Pause Podcast at gmail.com. Our website is still alive and kicking at Don't Push Pause Podcast dot com. Uh, we're our most active on Instagram, Don't Push Pause Podcast, and Facebook, Don't Push Pause Podcast. Uh, we will be doing another one of our giveaways for our one-year anniversary, so check out our social media for that. It's going to be a fun one. Um, our next movie, we're, we are going to take just a slight break. Not too long. This is a bi-weekly podcast. Uh, we're just going to take an extra two weeks off here, so uh, our new episode for season two, our first episode for season two, will premiere on June 4th. Oh my God, our second season. Our second season. Oh. Our second season of Don't Push Pause will begin with Repo Man, uh, which Perfect. is one that I've, I've been wanting to get in here forever, and I'm glad we're... It's going to be fun one just to watch together. You got your VHS girl painting of Repo Man that's, right over that's there. That's true, I do. Right over there in the studio. Hanging on the wall. So uh, that'll be up next. Wait, Justin... Do you remember that time that you came over to my house and we were just working on your laptop and our first practice episode was Monster Squad? And as bad as we were, we still were like, you know what? We, we still should continue kept going. to do this. still kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Dude, I'm so glad. That was over a year ago. That was, that was a long time that ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Man, thanks for letting me be part of this. Yeah, thank you for, for uh, you know, trusting me and, uh, and being We're going to have to have a hug now. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun and exciting year, and I hope uh, we have another strong year with a lot of movies that we love, a lot of discussions that we hope that you love. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.